0: Dear Father, I just ask that you would reveal yourself and reveal your son um, through this reading that we're going to do now. Amen. Amen. Okay, Mark 4:35 to 41 encourage you to get that out on your Bibles or your phones. If not, it's on the screen. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him, and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey?" Thanks, Lisa. you up. Thank you.
1: Come on now. No. it should be. How about I start talking? Hopefully, we'll take that soon. It's great to, to be here sharing uh, this with you. Um, in that last reading, you would have noticed that the disciples were terrified and asked, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And I dare say that if you were in that boat uh, and heard Jesus say to the winds and the waves, quietly still, you would have the same amazed response. Another story, we see the disciples give a similar reaction of terror and amazement when they're in the boat in the middle of the lake and Jesus comes walking out to them on the water. And the question arises, who is Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth who can walk on the water, who can do amazing miracles, whose teaching turned the world upside down? And lots of people back then asked that question when they encountered Jesus. And lots of people ask the same question today. And today I want to ask you the question, what do you make of Jesus who is called the Christ? And we're looking at the topic of, uh, uh, is Jesus just a prophet? and in particular we're addressing the Muslim claim that Jesus is just a prophet in opposition to the claims that Christians make about Jesus. And uh, so I'm imagining that there are a couple of different groups here. One of them, I'm hoping, are some Muslims who come along to investigate. interested in hearing what I have to say and I want to say uh, to them first and foremost, salam Alaikum. Welcome. I'm really glad uh, that you're here. Um, And I really enjoy talking to Muslims on this campus. I, in particular, uh, love the way that sometimes we passionately talk about such things and passionately disagree about such things but uh, in the end we can still be very warm and congenial to one another. It's wonderful to be able to do that. Um, uh, Just last week we had a dialogue meeting uh, with the Student Muslims Association the Sumsa crowd on this very topic of who is Jesus, and this time around I guess um, I want to add to this message by giving a passionate, heartfelt appeal to you to really consider uh, what the Bible has to say about Jesus because it matters. It really matters. It's a matter of life and death, heaven and hell. And if you come to the dialogue to know Uh, that I don't really beat around the bush when it comes to these topics. I've I've no desire, really, to prove uh, Islam wrong. What I want, really, more than anything, is for Muslims and really all people, to get to heaven. I want them to know that you don't have to just hope to get to heaven based on working really hard and doing all the stuff that you think in the hope that you'll be good enough to get into heaven. I want them to know that you can know for sure that you can definitely make it into heaven. That is why Jesus matters and that's why He came. And so, the Christians, I just want to urge you to listen to what I've got to say, but also to, um, to talk to Muslims on campus about it. It's fantastic that we can have these dialogues and we find that they're more than willing to talk to us about such things um, and it's fantastic that we can engage them on really important matters. That's what uni is meant to be all about, helping each other think through issues. And I'm sure that if you do that, you will, like me, find them to be very warm and friendly people and enjoy your conversations with them. If you're neither a Christian nor Muslim, then I'm glad that you're here too because the question applies to everyone really, uh, what do you make of Jesus? It's a question of the utmost of importance for everybody. So, before I begin, uh, I'm going to pray. Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Father in heaven, give me, please, words of truth. By your mighty power, do not let me stray into error. Guide us all into the truth about Jesus. And in his name we pray. Amen. 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 Now, many uh, Christians don't realise that Muslims also believe in Jesus because Jesus is mentioned uh, in the Qur'an. And even in the Qur'an it's obvious that there's something special about Jesus. He's a unique person. In Surah 3, 45 to 55, if you read it, you'll find that the Qur'an affirms that Jesus is distinguished not only in this world but also in the world to come. It also affirms that he was a prophet, that he was called the Word of God. The Spirit of God, that He was called the Messiah, that's the Hebrew term, the Greek term is the Christ, Uh, that He did amazing miracles like healing the sick, curing the blind and the lepers, and even raising the dead back to life again. The Quran in Surah 347 also affirms the virgin birth, that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. And in both the Bible and the Quran, this is a fairly unique phenomenon. Muslims on occasions argue that it's not so unique because Adam came into the world also without mother or father. Adam, they say, is even more unique if that's possible uh, than Jesus. But both the Bible and the Quran are clear that Adam was the first human created by God. In other words, he wasn't born at all. And so you can imagine there's good logical reason for Adam having this particular entry into the world. But why did Jesus alone, that's my question, have a virgin birth? Because no other person or prophet was born this way in the Bible or in the Quran or in history. Now I can understand why Adam came into existence the way he did, what God was doing there, but why did Jesus have a virgin birth? What reason, what purpose is there for this kind of a birth at all? And I'm not sure that the Quran actually gives any logical reason for it. I'm more than happy to be corrected on this, but I can't find it in you myself. But the Bible has an answer and it points to the uniqueness of Jesus, who he was. He's not like other men. He's not even like other prophets. He is more than a prophet. Jesus himself claims to be more than just a prophet. That is, when it comes to the topic of Jesus, there's three main differences between what the Quran uh, and what the Bible have to say about him. Firstly, the Quran denies that Jesus is divine. So Surah 5 verse 72 says, They are certainly disbelieved who say, Allah is the Messiah, the son of Mary. While the Messiah has said, O children of Israel, worship Allah, my Lord and your Lord. Indeed, he who associates others with Allah, Allah has forbidden him paradise. And his refuge is the fire, and there are not uh, for the wrongdoers any helpers. And a number of other places where it also affirms this, Secondly, it denies that he died on the cross and thirdly, it therefore denies that Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, rather, God raised Jesus to himself to avoid death on the cross altogether. So Surah 4, 157-158 says, uh, That they said in boast, We killed Jesus, the son of Mary, the messenger of Allah, but they killed him not, nor crucified him, but so it was made to appear to them. And those who differ therein are full of doubt with no certain knowledge. But only conjecture to follow. For of a surety they killed him not. Nay, Allah raised him up unto Himself, and Allah is exalted in power, wise. Now, if you're a Christian, you you have, have three major substantial differences because um, these would have to be the three main things that we would actually uh, declare as Christians uh, that what the New Testament actually teaches about who Jesus is and what He came to do. And it's for this reason I think that Muslims will often claim that the Bible has been changed and therefore can't be trusted. Now, uh, this is a whole topic in itself, and it's often, I think we might be doing a dialogue uh, on this later on uh, with Stumsa. But I've just got three quick things to say to this. Firstly, on the fact of Jesus' death alone, I think history is well and truly stacked in the favour of the New Testament's claim that he did die on the cross. I would consider both positive and hostile categorically affirm that Jesus died by crucifixion, and the historical record up until the time of the Quran, which is 600 years later, all state that Jesus died by crucifixion. Secondly, uh, we've literally thousands of manuscripts from all over the Mediterranean that we've discovered that go back in time to about 40 years after the time of writing the original manuscripts. and You may be able to argue that there have been some minor changes spelling, words dropped out, that kind of thing uh, between the manuscripts. But even the most unsympathetic critic would have to agree that the New Testament has been amazingly well preserved for us, the message of it. And the sheer volume of manuscripts right around the Mediterranean region clearly shows that there's been no systematic editing or tampering or uh, revision of the text Uh, to substantially deviate from the the original story. Because we're not talking about one or two verses that have been slipped into the Bible to say these things at all. We're not talking about small changes, but these are the three differences, um, uh, or or I should say uh, uh, there are lots and lots of different verses uh, that speak about who Jesus is, that speak about his death on the cross and that's that speak about his resurrection from the dead. In fact, you would find that they're so foundational to the New Testament and so intricately uh, interwoven into the whole text of the New Testament that to try to rip them out would be like blowing up the foundation of a skyscraper and systematically trying to pull those every second level in the hope that the structure would remain standing. It just doesn't work. And lastly. We believe, like Muslims, that God has promised to preserve his word. And I say to them, God in the Old Testament promises it, in the New Testament he promises it, and if God didn't keep his promise to preserve the Bible, why should I trust his promise to preserve any later revelations? There is no way that God would allow his word, uh, which he delivered to mankind, to be irrecoverably lost or changed by mere men. So, who is Jesus? Well, both Christians and Muslims would say that he is the Christ. What does Christ mean? It means that he's the anointed one of God. But what does that mean? Well, it's very clear what the Jews of Jesus' day thought it meant. They had very clear from their history, and even just reading the pages of the New Testament, that the Jews expected the Messiah to be the all-conquering king. God had made huge promises in the Old Testament that there would be a future king who would come to say, God's people from their enemies. And he would defeat all their enemies and his kingdom would be set up as a kingdom that would last forever and that would take over the whole world. It would be God's own kingdom, the kingdom of God. Let me just give you one of the prophecies from the Old Testament, a thousand years before Jesus. 2 Samuel 7, When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I'll raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body and I'll establish His kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for My name, and I'll establish the throne of His kingdom forever. So believe me when I say to you that the Jews had expected His kingdom of God not only to be established in Israel, but conquer the whole world. So when Jesus comes along and does His miracles, that amaze all the people. Um, they're thinking that Jesus obviously has that kind of supernatural power that is able to conquer not only the Romans, but all the world. And so they're hoping that he would be that Messiah. But Jesus didn't want to be pigeonholed or straight by these expectations. He wanted the people to work out who he was simply based on what he said and what he did. And when it came to his teaching, what he said, most of Jesus' teaching centered on the topic of the kingdom of God. He taught... That he was the king of the king that kingdom and that this was a kingdom unlike any other kingdom that would one day be perfect and permanent. Jesus did lots of miracles, and these miracles we're discovering the Bible aren't just party tricks like pulling a rabbit out of the hat to impress people. No, the Bible calls them signs, and signs naturally point to something, they're significant. What did they point to? They pointed to the fact that he had the power to set up a kingdom that would be free from sickness, from evil, and even free from suffering and death. The kingdom would not be a normal kingdom. But Jesus said to Pilate at his, um, at his trial, My kingdom is not of this world If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. So he makes very clear that the kingdom uh, was not going to be set up through force, it was going to be a spiritual kingdom, a heavenly kingdom, made up of people who listened to Jesus and followed him. And the way uh, Jesus often preferred to call himself was by the title, the Son of God. And so, in all of his teachings, the main description he used of himself as the Son. Sorry, the Son of Man. Now, what does the Son term, Son of Man, mean? It can mean merely human, like the prophet Ezekiel is called the Son of Man. Um, signify his mere humanity in distinction to God but in the Old Testament there's also a prophecy that talks about a certain son of man who looks very much like the all conquering powerful Christ who would rule forever so have a look at this with me Daniel 7 in my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All peoples, nations and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So what does Jesus mean by calling himself the Son of Man? It was a bit uncertain at the beginning of Jesus' ministry but. As he goes along it becomes very clear by what he says and what he does particularly how he displays as to what he means by son of man. And just uh, on the night of his trial he was put under oath by the high priest and he was asked so in Matthew 26 the high priest said to him I charge you under oath by the living but tell us if you are the Christ the son of God. Yes it is as you say Jesus replied but I say to you to all of you. In the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. At which point, the high priest tears his robe and shouts out blasphemy. And you can see there that he is clearly quoting and referring to Daniel 7. He is the Son of Man who would sit on a heavenly throne and rule the kingdom of God forevermore. Not only that, Jesus ruled himself, God's Son to signify his unique relationship with God as his Father. Uh, I don't have time to delve into a lot of this, but John 5, for example, where the Father has life in himself, so he granted the Son to have life in himself, and he's given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Notice the two titles are linked there. And we see there that Jesus um, uh, clearly here exercises divine attributes of giving life and ultimate judgement. The Jews understood this to be a claim to divinity. That's why they wanted to get rid of him and twice they tried to stone him because of his claims to divinity. You can see that in John 10 verses 30-39. to And this is why Christians have to conclude that Jesus is so much more than a prophet. That is if you believe what he said and what he did. He is the divine Son of God, the Son of Man who would rule the world forever. And that is why Christians call Jesus The Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ. That is the heart of the New Testament message, isn't it? Jesus is Lord. Someone should print that on the (laughs) t-shirt. But there is a second question that needs asking of Jesus. What did Jesus come to do? What was his mission? Well, we're told right from his birth what his mission uh, was to be. It was captured in his name. Joseph is told uh, when Mary is pregnant She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Actually, the name Jesus in the Hebrew means Yahweh saves. Yahweh, the name of God in the Old Testament, or simply God saves. And Jesus is named Jesus. It tells us there because he will save his people from their sins. People thought that the Messiah would save them from the physical human enemies, but what we discover is that they actually had far bigger enemies than just human ones. Their sin meant they were God's enemies. The punishment for sins, according to the Bible, is death, eternal death, in other words. There's hell to pay. But this is why Jesus' coming is such good news for the world, because he came to save us from our sins, from the hell that awaits all of us, come that judgment day. There's a story in the Bible that shows us the importance um, of this in, in, in Jesus' mission. In Mark chapter 2, let me read it to you. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralysed man, carried by four of them. Since they couldn't get into Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralysed man, son, your sins are forgiven. And you could just imagine that scene, couldn't you? If you were there in that crowded house, you could imagine how everyone would have stopped as they're looking up and watching this man being lowered on this mount. Every eye on Jesus as he comes down right before him and everyone expecting him to heal him because that's what he does. That's what he's done everywhere. He's gone he's got to heal him. And... Jesus simply says, son, your sins are forgiven. Shock, horror, everyone thinking, what about his legs, Jesus? Did you notice? But he does this to show that there is something even more important than healing, even more important than walking, even more important than this life. And that is our need for the forgiveness of our sins. We need to be saved from. But there is also something else that shows us. Let's read on Mark 2 6. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in the Spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralysed man your sins are forgiven or to say get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. And this amazed everyone and they praised God saying we have never seen anything like this. But Jews are right. Only God can forgive sins. Yet Jesus has this authority and he proves it by healing the paralysed man in full view of them all. Jesus didn't just come to give us a message. He didn't just come to show that he was the Lord of Christ. He came to save us from our sins. And the Bible's message is good news because Jesus is not only Lord, but he is also saviour. If you think about it, it's great to know that the one who rules the universe forever is the one who loves you enough that he would want you to be with him in heaven, even though you don't deserve it. Now the common thing I hear from lots of people is that well, that's good and well for those who need it, but I don't need it. My sins aren't all that bad, and they think that they can make it through the judgment day quite all right on their own. Actually, Jesus faced regularly with religious people who thought this way, um, who thought that they were good enough for God, and that's why Jesus hung around sinners a lot—prostitutes, tax collectors, sinners were His regular <coughs> audience. And when when asked. Why Jesus did this, in Mark 2, he says, on on hearing this, Jesus says to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The point is that only the spiritually sick need Jesus. Only sinners need a saviour. But Jesus told another story for the sake of those who thought they were good enough to God. Listen to this one. Luke 18, he says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. It's very clear stories of two uh, men there. The first man is a very religious, a very good man by uh, one standard. Furthermore, he he knows that that is the case. He knows he's no thief. He's no criminal. He's no uh, adultery. He doesn't sleep around, he doesn't cheat people. And it's not just that he avoids bad things, he can tick-box for the good things he does. He fasts twice a week. Hands up Did you do that. I don't think so. And he gives the 10% of everything you get. Oh, what else? Um, <laughs> now, they do so there are two parts of their anatomy that they really look after. The first is their stomach and the second is their back pocket. Um, But you notice that this guy has been willing to sacrifice both because he thinks that by doing that, that God will think that he's good enough to get into heaven or he's hoping that that is the case. What this guy knows is that he's better than most. He's in a better position than most other people when it comes to getting into heaven. Now, the other guy in the story, he knows quite the opposite. He's a self-confessed sinner, the self-confessed loser. He's a tax collector. And the Jews in this story would, be, would say, enough said. The tax collectors were the worst of sinners. They're traitors. But he stands at the back of the temple, not because he's cruel. Um, like I would, you know, trying to get into the back of the bus, or sit at the back of the legislature, in a desperate attempt to show myself to be cruel. No, he does it because he knows that he's unworthy. I can't approach God. No way. I don't deserve it. And when you praise to God, he says nothing but begs God for mercy. And you beg for mercy when you've got nothing else to plead. It's an important point. You beg for mercy when you've got nothing else to plead. And he says to God, God, I've got nothing. I've got nothing to bargain with you, Rich. Really. You know that I'm a bad man. I'm a sinner. So God, I beg for mercy. It should beg for mercy when you've got nothing to bargain with. And when it comes to getting to heaven, this guy is completely depending on God being merciful because he's done nothing. He's got nothing to offer. Now, what surprises most people when Jesus tells this story is that... In God's book, it's not the very good man at the beginning, the religious man who gets God's thumbs up, his seal of approval as to the one who gets into heaven. No, but the self-confessed loser. It's the sinner who gets right with God. Not the first man that everyone else would have been impressed with. Now, why is that? Well, if you go back and have a look at verse 9, you can see there's some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everybody else. Jesus told this parable, this story. According to Jesus, the reason that people are confident that they're good enough for God is because they compare themselves to other people. And you You know, know, what I think about, compared to most people, compared to other people, I think I look pretty good. Not just physically, (laughs) but spiritually as well. And you may be thinking the same. I think most people, if they were asked to kind of put themselves on a the line of where they would fit in the spiritual queue, well, they wouldn't just put themselves smack bang in the middle. They put themselves just above average, like we tend to think of ourselves. Most uh, men tend to think that they're above average sports players, do you know that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's the way human nature operates because we, we compare ourselves, and when we compare ourselves to other people, we can work out pretty much other people who are worse than I am, and therefore. That makes me feel better about myself. But God doesn't want me to see how I measure up compared to other people. He wants us to measure up to His perfect standard. And if we do that, then we should work out very easily that we don't have it. That's why God gave His law in the Old Testament, to show us that. We don't make the grave. We don't keep all the commandments. We're not good enough. For this very pure, (laughs) very awesome God that is there. And the point of the story is that none of us are good enough to get into heaven. We all need mercy. And mercy is why Jesus came. He came to save us from our sins, to give us something that we don't deserve. And He does it by dying on the cross. And that is why a significant proportion of each of the Gospels, is given over to the death of Jesus. Not just a little bit, but a huge slab of each Gospel is spent talking about the death of Jesus on the cross. And not just that, but why so much of the New Testament letters are given over to explain what the death of Jesus means for us in everyday life. This is himself explained in Mark chapter 10, that even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We understand that Jesus died as a ransom. The ransom was his life for ours. He died so that we didn't have to die. He copped hell so that we didn't have to cop hell. He swapped places uh, with us. He died to save us from our sins, the penalty for our sins, so that we could live with him. Forever in the kingdom of his making. And there's heaps <coughs> more that I want to say about this, but time prevents me. But I need to say that Jesus didn't stay dead, he rose again. He ascended into heaven to sit at God's right hand as that powerful Son of Man, and we wait for him to come back to judge the living and the dead and to set up his kingdom that will last forever. And when that day comes, if you turn to Jesus and you put your trust in him, you can be sure that you enter his kingdom of heaven forever. The Christians are confident of getting into heaven. That's a major difference between Muslims and Christians. We claim that we can know for sure, not because of who we are or what we've done, but because of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Friends, I want to say, why gamble on that judgment day on the things that you've done? in the hope that you might get it. Look to Jesus and be sure of you getting him. Jesus came to save us <coughs> from our sins. But it's only those who recognise that they need a saviour who turn to him. You may say that you're hoping for God's mercy. Well, you only beg for mercy if you've got nothing to bargain. Muslims often count on the fact that they will ask God for mercy in the hope that what they've done together with God's mercy will get them through. But the Bible makes it clear that you only get to beg for mercy when you've got nothing to bargain with, offer. And if you've got nothing to bargain with, when Jesus is your man, he is your prophet, he is your Lord and he is your saviour, he died to save you and your Turn to him. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Misa. We've got some time for Q&A now. Um, if you had questions that were raised by uh, Mrs. Talk, feel free to put your hand up and ask them. Yeah, up and down. Well, isn't it true that um, if you want to go to heaven,
1: if you might yourself? help, I'm um, I mean, that's why
0: have to roll yourself
1: up. That's it? yeah, a good question. Um, so, um, hmm. I think the best thing you can do is ask a question. So, I encourage people to uh, talk to Muslims about what they believe because the last thing I want is for a Muslim to explain what Christians believe, and the last thing I want to do is explain what Muslims uh, think and believe, except for what they've said to I've got some who've said, and other friends who've said, no, absolutely not. So, the best thing to do is to kind of ask them about uh, what they believe.
0: Time for more. If not, I've got one. You said, Musa, um, put your trust in Jesus. Mm-hmm. What do you mean? How do I put my trust in Jesus? What do you mean by that?
1: Um, that's a good question. Uh, I was actually asked by someone from a Muslim background what I meant by that, and um, I said, it's simply about trusting in who Jesus is. That you accept uh, what He claims about Himself and you accept what he did uh, on, for, for your sake, on, on your behalf, that he died on the cross to save you from your sins, that it was sufficient penalty to save you, that you were completely saved by it, and secondly, that he rose again as Lord and all of all, so that you follow him as your Lord. Therefore, if you claim that he is Lord, then he should be your Lord. So, putting your trust in Jesus means to accept what he's done, um, take him as my own that could have died for me so I can know for sure that I'm going to heaven and follow him as um, Lord and Savior.